Will you pray with me? O Lord, potter of creation, breath of life, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1973, a collective of women, almost all of whom were clerical workers, all of whom were tired of sexual harassment, tired of earning less than their male peers despite doing the same job, and tired of facing the reality that their careers could be held back by a bad boss or by a glass ceiling, came together and formed a union. The name of that union was Boston 9 to 5. Their work inspired the film 9 to 5, which starred Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton. It was also, of course, the inspiration for Parton's song, 9 to 5. Parton's song opens with a bouncy and inviting first verse. Tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from 9 to 5. But for all that bounce and invitation, the chorus of that song quickly tells us that something less positive is going on. The chorus sounds like this. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taking and no giving. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. Want to move ahead, but the boss won't seem to let me. Right, there's a big difference there between that chorus and the first verse. It's important to note because this union was formed in 1973. Those lyrics were written in 1981. And yet, the same song could be written today, albeit with the slight edit of the working day, which for many people is no longer nine to five. Hospitality and other service workers work frequently truncated shifts that last from nine to two or two until seven or six until close. And in many cases, even if they aren't scheduled to work, they're asked to remain available in case they need to be called in. More recently, the advent of new technology and our society's increasing demand for instant gratification of literally every need, coupled with the rising cost of basic necessities like food and shelter, has encouraged the rise of the so-called gig economy. In this economy, personal cars become taxi replacements for anywhere from a few hours to the majority of a day. And in some cases, Americans leave their formal jobs and then hop in their car to begin delivering food or groceries. In the past year, many of us have worked from home. And so the traditional barriers between work and life, like commuting, and having a physical separation between your home and your place of work have been erased. And so many of us now find ourselves answering emails at 8 p.m. or sending a quick text to a work colleague right before or after dinner. It seems that in spite of all the advancements made in working conditions, in pay and in hiring practices, we are again allowing labor to consume our lives. 
be clear, however, that consumption is not a burden that is evenly shared. There's a trend here in terms of who often shoulders the heaviest burden in this economy, in this world of labor. And the stories that I'm about to share, I hope that you can see it. Last November, California voters passed Proposition 22, a ballot initiative that overturned AB5, which was a major workers' rights law that required companies to reclassify their gig workers as employees who would have been entitled to minimum wage, to overtime, and workers' compensation. The campaign in support of Proposition 22 was the most expensive ballot measure in U.S. history as companies that thrive on this classification system, on this gig economy, poured $200 million into ads encouraging support for it. This past December, we learned that managers at a meatpacking plant in Iowa organized what has been called a cash buy-in, winner-take-all betting pool for supervisors and managers to wager how many of their employees would test positive for COVID-19. And on the West Coast, as temperatures soared beyond 100 degrees this past month, farm workers went to work. So perhaps it's no surprise that farm workers die from heat stroke at a rate nearly 20 times greater than any other civilian job in this country. Moreover, many of those farm workers who are often immigrants and on the lowest rung of our socioeconomic ladder are paid per piece rather than per hour, a reality made possible by the Fair Labor Standards Act, which, while establishing the 40-hour work week and banning oppressive child labor, also expressly exempted farm labor from its protections because agriculture was seen as a profession for black Americans. In each of the stories I've offered, there is a clear trend line. Those who endure the worst of labor are the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. Moreover, one can see in real time the decisions that are being made to enrich corporations and shareholders at the expense of workers. Not only does our scripture warn against this, but it provides a clear consequence. No matter what riches one accumulates, if that accumulation is built upon the backs of an exploited or impoverished people, then the oppressor will ultimately suffer loss. It is easy to overlook that declaration. We live in a society that constantly tells us that the accumulation of riches is a noble and indeed a just pursuit, a pursuit that all of us should actively participate in. And yet, here sits this proverb, suggesting that a society organized in such a manner may certainly accumulate riches in the short term, while ultimately staggering towards loss. This is not much different than the question oft offered, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? What might it mean for us to focus on the accumulation of earthly possessions and to do so by harming God's creation? Proverbs is often seen as a collection of common sense sayings, as quick, short, and easy statements to read and move on from. 
but my friends, in its entirety, Proverbs is a call. A call to live a life that is pleasing to God. A call for self-reflection. Because a close reading of this text reveals the reality. It is indeed possible to find ourselves under the impression that we are pursuing wisdom, when in reality we are following folly. Having said all of this, I want to be sure that we all note the beautiful call in the middle of today's scripture reading. Those who are generous are blessed, for they share their bread with the poor. The original Hebrew says, the one who has a good eye shall be blessed. Good eye meaning kind and generous. The generosity here isn't in sharing finances, though it is certainly good to do so if you are able. The generosity here is in sharing bread, an act that we encounter throughout this faith, an act of coming together, of bonding with one another, an act of awaiting the stillness of God in the presence of this simple yet beautiful meal, an act that reminds us that we all come from the earth and that one day we will all surely return to it. Going forward, what might it mean to share bread in this moment? How big will the table be? Who will be invited? In the year 2021, how do we make space to share bread with all those whom we pass while living in a world that constantly tells us it's actually not that important of a thing to do? These are the questions that Proverbs leads us to ponder, particularly as we think about the relationship between those who are oppressed and those who have been enriched through that oppression. As Dolly Parton's Ode to Workers fades away, one line stands out. There's a better life, and you think about it, don't you? My friends, let's not think about it. Let's actively bring that life into being. Amen.